Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Ackeson Podcast, which is on justthenews.com, a fact-based digital news site. I hope you'll subscribe to this and other Just the News podcasts, John Solomon Reports, and the Pod's Honest Truth. Today, we're going to talk about the effort by members of the media, some journalists and some ordinary folks, who bully and controversialize those who are asking rational, legitimate questions and who are reporting quite accurately on coronavirus. We'll go over the example of the New York Times defamatory article about me and the corrections they ended up having to make. I have an exciting announcement, exciting for me anyway. You can now pre-order my next book, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. It fits right in with today's topic. What is behind this odd movement that seems to say that Certain people want all journalists on the same page, accepting and parroting official information without doing our normal jobs of verifying information to the extent possible, of trying to get any inconsistencies or unanswered questions answered and putting it all in context. Well, perhaps you've noticed when it comes to covering coronavirus, there has been this weird phenomenon and people being targeted and singled out by some in the media those of us getting bullied or controversialized, at least in my case, aren't reporting anything differently than some of the outlets doing the criticism. Why are they coming after certain people and not others? Why are they coming after them for perfectly accurate reporting? Well, let's briefly go over the case of the New York Times just to quickly review. Two weeks ago, I found myself mentioned in a false and defamatory article by the New York Times' Jeremy Peters, who wrote about five supposed coronavirus doubters. And not only have I never been a coronavirus doubter or expressed anything like that, quite the opposite. I've stated explicitly, um, you know, the concerns, the dangers. I've listed every death in the United States when it was possible to do so. I have explicitly said that the deaths, even though, as all officials say, they occur primarily among the elderly and the immune suppressed, that certainly doesn't mean it's not a terribly serious situation. It doesn't mean that others aren't potentially at risk. Um, so being targeted by the New York Times was quite a surprise, but also it had in this small paragraph a lot of false information and implications and a deceptively altered quote. So I wrote the New York Times immediately, and editor Carol and Ryan didn't address any of the false information. She just said, because I reported quite accurately, on the number of deaths and who they were, that people could then misconstrue that they were not at high risk if they weren't in a high-risk category, which is wild because, of course, the Times had reported the same thing I had, and yet was now magically saying when I report the facts, the same facts the Times reported and Dr. Fauci and other public officials reported and the same facts that CDC puts out, that somehow when I report them, it becomes misleading to the public. So I hired a libel lawyer, uh, letters were exchanged, and where we are right now, although we're not finished, the New York Times has issued numerous corrections to its false article two weeks later. Um, in the part, again, it was no more than a few sentences really about me. They've removed information, they've made three revisions, 
They partially fixed the deceptively edited quote, and they added a paragraph of a correction. Um, Unfortunately, few who read the original article, as we know, will see the corrections, and the uncorrected article remained posted at least for another day or two minimum in places that had picked it up. So what did the correction say, by the way? The correction did not go over all the things they changed about the article, which is one problem I have with the correction, but listen to what they admit. An earlier version of this article, they say, referred imprecisely to statements made by Cheryl Ackeson. That wasn't the problem. That's how they, they word the correction, though. They go on to say, Ms. Ackeson accurately reported the number and location of U.S. coronavirus deaths as of the date of her March 13th podcast. That was one of the uh, things that I had published that, that they picked apart and tried to make it look as though I was doubting coronavirus. Separately, they say a reference to advertisements for protective masks that appeared on Ms. Atkinson's website has been removed. That was a reference to just a snide comment at the end of this paragraph about me in the Jeremy Peters article. He said, because I'm a coronavirus doubter, I'm not, but because this article said I was, he said people might be confused because when visiting my website, there was an ad for masks on there. Well, most people who work on the internet, most journalists, I think, would know that those Google ads are rotated. I don't see them. I don't know what content is on at a given time. So I suppose they removed that snarky reference in recognition of the fact that it had nothing to do with anything. So my points um, that were still kind of going back and forth over, the corrections took too long. They should appear at the end of the paragraph about me, not at the end of the whole article where nobody's going to see them. They did not quickly make sure they were published in articles that had reprints, such as the Chicago Tribune. The correction from the Times failed to acknowledge that Peters had violated New York Times policy. And I learned this from someone connected to the Times, that it's part of policy that they have to, the reporter, contact the person in the article for comment ahead of time. And Peters didn't contact me, and I don't think he contacted the other subjects, although I haven't spoken all of them. Also, the correction fails to state that it corrected the misquote, the deceptively edited quote that Peters had created, attributed to me, and the quote is still not fully accurate. It's out of context, and it picks up mid-sentence without showing that it picked up mid-sentence, trying to make me sound flippant about a death count that I was giving. Um, The correction fails to note that it added another phrase to clarify a statement that had kind of implied my information was incorrect. So it clarified another graph to say that my information actually was correct. Now, I think it's so strange that in this effort to controversialize certain people like me, and I'm not exactly sure who's behind the effort yet, but this drumbeat about coronavirus doubters and how those should be punished for downplaying coronavirus It's very odd even when a review of the news shows that the people making these demands, many of them, did doubt coronavirus by their definition, you know, when you look at the things that they wrote early on. Who is behind the effort then to single out some people, to weaponize this and plaster the media and social media with it? It's a pretty serious thing because I've been talking to a number of coronavirus scientists, including some right now doing work for the government, and they separately, not in front of one another, and not even knowing about my controversy with the Times, as far as I know, independently brought up concerns that some of the information we're getting is not in context or is not true, 
such as the way the fatality rate is, was calculated. We've gone over that before. And they are not coronavirus doubters. They're very much coronavirus believers. But they are afraid if they speak out to clarify or try to put this information in context, they told me they were concerned that they would be called or mislabeled as a coronavirus doubter or denier. And I shared back with some of these scientists that it's a dangerous time when scientists feel as though they have to let what they think is information that's not quite right about public health, that they have to kind of let it go and not speak about it publicly lest they be labeled. And likewise, a dangerous time when journalists are bullied or told or made to feel as though they can't answer the normal questions they would ask about any controversy or issue of importance to the American public. So in my ongoing dialogue with the New York Times, I have pointed out that I was maliciously targeted and singled out for reporting something quite accurately that pretty much everybody else reported. And I asked, what is the magic that supposedly causes my factual reporting to leave misleading impressions but the same reporting by the New York Times, CNN, and public health officials does not. So let's go over a couple of those examples. Again, the Times is saying, is claiming initially, Carolyn Ryan, the editor, that because I accurately reported the high-risk categories, who's most at risk, who are the ones who are most at risk of death, because I accurately reported that and listed the deaths, that I'm somehow creating an atmosphere where people will, you know, get the wrong impression about coronavirus, so I'm a coronavirus doubter. But look at this. The New York Times, Dr. David Katz, on March 20th, in an article entitled, Is Our Fight Against Coronavirus Worse Than the Disease? He writes, As much as 99% of active cases in the general population are mild and do not require specific medical treatment, the small percentage of cases that do require such services are highly concentrated among those age 60 and under, and further so the older people are. Well, he's right about that. I'm not saying he's wrong, but this is the stuff that the New York Times says makes one a coronavirus doubter in their own newspaper. On March 12th, the New York Times, quote, Amid the uncertainty swirling around the coronavirus pandemic stands one incontrovertible, did I say that wrong, incontrovertible fact the highest rate of fatalities is among older people, particularly those with underlying medical conditions. Well, that's true. That's what I reported. Let's look at some of the things that New York Governor Cuomo has said, March 22nd. About 70% who died were people 70 and older who had underlying health problems. The majority of people who died are younger th that were younger than 70 also had another health issue. He said, remember, this is about protecting vulnerable people, older people, compromised immune systems, underlying illness. Those are the people that are vulnerable here. That is the focus of all this. He continues, many people will get the virus, but few will be truly endangered. Hold both of those facts in your hands. Many will get it. Up to 80% may get it, but few are truly endangered, and we know who they are. It is about the vulnerable. It is not about 95% of us. It's about a few percent who are vulnerable. That's all this is about. Bring down the anxiety. Bring down that fear. Bring down that paranoia. And then quoted in Axios on March 2nd, Cuomo, the general risk remains low in New York. No reason for anxiety. Again, I have no issue with what Cuomo is saying or what Axios is reporting. But why am I singled out as a coronavirus denier 
when I report similar facts about the health risks and who's dying, it's factually accurate, but Governor Cuomo isn't on their list of coronavirus deniers? How about the CDC? As of the recording of this podcast, the CDC website still says, accurately, the immediate risk of being exposed to this virus is still low for most Americans. It goes on to say risk of serious illness are older adults with risk increasing by age, people who have serious chronic medical conditions like heart disease, diabetes, lung disease, people age 65 and over, people who live in a nursing home or long-term care facility. Again, what I reported. CDC and the World Health Organization also says they were urging older people and people with severe medical conditions to stay home as much as possible early on and avoid crowds. And they pointed out most people who get the virus have mild cases. The elderly face greater risks. And then they noted this was on March 8th by Fox News and Associated Press, that the CDC said the virus is still much less widespread than annual flu epidemics, which cause up to 5 million severe cases around the world and up to 650,000 deaths annually, according to the World Health Organization. So again, I don't think people think CDC and the World Health Organization are downplaying or doubting coronavirus, but by the New York Times definition they are, yet they weren't singled out. How about Dr. Fauci in the Journal of the American Medical Association? In an interview on March 6th, Fauci says, It's so clear that the overwhelming weight of serious disease and mortality is on those who are elderly and those with a serious comorbidity, heart disease, chronic lung disease, diabetes, obesity, respiratory difficulties. He says, if you look at the weight of the data, the risk group is very, very clear. Kaiser Health News writes, Officials warn frail elderly to take extra precautions. Dr. Fauci again, March 8th. The elderly and those with underlying medical issues should immediately suspend all travel plans. They could have an acute reaction if exposed to the virus. He says if you look at the people who wind up getting into serious difficulty and even dying, that's very heavily weighted toward individuals with underlying conditions, particularly the elderly. And he says... Right now, if you're in that category, you should start to distance yourself from the risk. The people with underlying conditions need to distance themselves from crowds. Washington Post also emphasizes the high-risk categories, rightly so. Italy's aging population, it says, is probably particularly susceptible to the disease, researchers say. With a median age of 46 and a half, it is the fifth oldest country in the world. These elderly citizens are those who become the sickest. People over age 70 represent more than 87% of the deaths there. Older people are typically hit harder with respiratory diseases. They are more likely to get pneumonia and to have underlying health conditions that could make older people vulnerable to the virus. And they quote a doctor who says, this is the Washington Post article, with older people, sometimes it doesn't take very much to push you over the edge. Vice President Mike Pence on March 4th, the risk to the American public of contracting coronavirus remains low. To be clear, if you are a healthy American, the risk of contracting the coronavirus remains low. Jake Tapper on CNN March 22nd tweeted out, The disease can be fatal, especially for those 60 and above and or with pre-existing conditions. U.S. News & World Report and Associated Press on March 18th. For most people, the virus causes only mild or moderate symptoms such as fever and cough. For some, especially older adults and people with existing health problems, it can cause more serious illness, including pneumonia. 
CNN, March 18th. Most coronavirus deaths were 60 years and older. Older adults twice as likely to have serious illness from novel coronavirus, and the fatal cases in the U.S. appear to reflect that. The majority of people who've died were in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. The youngest were in their earlier mid-50s. Many lived in nursing homes or other facilities. The deadliest cluster they discussed was linked to a nursing home. Many had other health problems. They list the health problems. Politico on March 8th, health officials shift tone on coronavirus, say elderly and sick at risk. BBC says the same thing on March 11th. The UK government scientific advisors believe that the chances of dying from coronavirus infection are between one half of 1% and 1%. This is lower than the rate of death among confirmed cases, which is 4% globally in WHO figures, World Health Organization, and 5% in the UK as of March 23rd because not all infections are confirmed by testing. The elderly and the unwell are more likely to die if they contract coronavirus. They go on to talk about age. Lancet Medical Journal, March 12th, that says death rates are lowest for those under 30. Deaths at least five times more common for people with diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, etc. Median age of deaths are 70, with deficit of infections among children. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, March 2nd. He was encouraging people fairly early on to, quote, go on with your lives, get out on the town despite coronavirus. The Surgeon General Jerome Adams, March 6th, he said the risk of coronavirus remains low. Most people will not need hospitalization. Quote, what we want most of America to know is that you're not at high risk for getting coronavirus. And if you do, you're likely to recover. 98, 99 percent of people are going to fully recover. So that's just a small sampling, really, of the reporting that mirrors the same thing I reported that somehow got me on the New York Times coronavirus doubter list, but none of these other people or media outlets or public officials made it on the same list. Also, um, the New York Times claimed that I was emphasizing certain facts, such as death rates, rather than other facts when I talked about coronavirus, and they claimed That made me a coronavirus doubter. But in fact, the New York Times is the one cherry-picking and emphasizing certain pieces of my reporting because a fair look at the body of work showed that I did not convey that coronavirus did not pose a significant threat, as they claimed. I did not ever insist, quote, coronavirus is overhyped, as they falsely reported. In fact, I had reported on my national television show about the threat of coronavirus being passed across the border, We had that segment on full measure. Um, In several forums, I did list every coronavirus death to date. My tally was at times higher and more up to date than other media, including the New York Times. And I noted when I was doing these tallies that the numbers were increasing daily and that it would not be possible for me to always keep them current because they were moving so fast. And I always referred to CDC.gov and to the Johns Hopkins, that math and death count map with a graphic that typically has higher figures than other resources. Also, um, I did some reporting that pointed out coronavirus was not becoming less deadly, despite others who were misreporting on the topic based on the fatality rate supposedly growing lower. Well, the true fatality rate wasn't growing lower, just the accuracy of the information was getting a little better. We'll continue this discussion and also talk about the controversy over masks right after a short message. (laughs) 
One final point about the New York Times reporting to try to label people coronavirus doubters, including me for simply reporting accurately on information that others reported on, why I'm being singled out, what bigger picture is at play by these efforts on social media and by some in the media to controversialize and bully reporters and officials and doctors and researchers who are asking questions that should be asked, logical, rational, reasonable questions, not doubting anything in particular, simply asking for the verification and context that we should get on every story. But one of the things the New York Times did in its article mentioning me, Jeremy Peters identified me by an old title, a job I held six years ago rather than any of my current titles, which is odd because Normally, news organizations have general policies about things like that. You would identify somebody by their current title, unless only their former title came into play for some reason. But still, you would probably mention their current title. And as I noted, he called me, Cheryl Ackeson, a former CBS News journalist who has developed a devoted following among right-leaning television viewers. Aha! Now, there's no research he has to back that up. That's just a statement he's making up or presuming, not very journalistic. In fact, the viewership of my current program, which he doesn't mention, doesn't identify me by, full measure, uh, which feeds to 43 million households, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, and Telemundo, that show goes to all kinds of people and viewers. I don't think we've done a demographic study to see if half of them or more are conservative or half or more are liberal. But certainly, Peters has no information that says that one way or another. So he's making a presumption here that may be true, may be false, but he clearly wants to point out or put me in a political corner for some reason that has to do with why he's singling me out for this article. Then he calls me a podcast host and says that I had published my own analysis of coronavirus death rates, like that was kind of weird. I did analyze it. I mean, if you want to call collecting them an analysis, I collected um, the public health reported information on each death. But in any event, why is he using a former job title that I left six years ago, not mentioning any of my current titles, such as the full measure job, not mentioning my background, as a recognized, you know, kind of expert on some of the stories I've covered that have garnered recognition from national awards like the Emmys and the Edward R. Murrows for my investigative reporting. So I do think the fact that Peters is reaching back six years for a title, making me a former something, describes or demonstrates his ill intent. It would be sort of like writing an article about Peters of the New York Times and referring to him only as a former reporter for the Michigan Daily. That's an incomplete and outdated and inaccurate description. So again, there's something, some reason that he wants a certain impression left by this false and defamatory article that he published. I personally find the inner workings of these sorts of things to be fascinating to dissect something that's really interesting to peel back and expose and look at. But let's move on from that to a related topic about masks. Because we are, at the time this is being recorded, 
on the verge, according to the press reports, of getting a new recommendation from CDC that will have something to do with the idea that people should wear some sort of masks or can wear some sort of masks after all for some added protection against coronavirus. Well, I know a lot of you are thinking out there, but just a couple weeks ago, the same people were telling us masks don't work, don't wear them. So let's go through that. A couple of weeks ago, when there were not enough masks, we were told, don't buy masks, they don't work for you. So there's no point in buying them, save them for the public health or the actual health professionals. Now, I think what they would have said if they were being entirely candid was, there's not enough masks for everybody, please don't use them on yourself when the people who need them most are the health professionals. That's perfectly legitimate, but they they weren't really saying that. Maybe some were, but the message we got initially was, they don't work for you, don't waste your time. And then the next message that came was, this was actually said by some health officials, well, they only work one way. They'll keep your germs in if you're infected, but they won't stop other people's germs from coming through. And there was a lot of skepticism about that, including some on social media who were saying things like, where can I buy these incredible one-way masks who know not to let germs out, but to let virus come in? And how do they know to do that for ordinary people, but they work better for health professionals? Then the next thing we heard was, okay, 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 maybe the masks work, but they work really for health professionals because they're very close to sick people. And You ordinary people aren't close to sick people, so you shouldn't wear them because they won't work for you, which again, just, I think, leaves some context out. And then next we were told, well, the masks won't work for you because you'll touch your face. You'll wear them wrong and you'll actually get sicker. You'll, You'll increase your chances of getting sick because you will wear them so wrong. Again, I think Maybe a better message would have been, if you have a mask, there are correct ways to wear it. Don't get a false sense of security because here are the risks. If you touch your face, it's going to be perhaps more risk. But to say it's worse for you, you can't wear them right, it won't help you. And then to now be turning around and saying, okay, maybe you should wear a mask. So I use this example not because I'm doubting coronavirus or doubting the benefits of wearing a mask, but I'm saying that a lot of people in the public are not stupid. And when they hear something that doesn't make sense, or they can find their own research that shows something they're hearing is not true or maybe is not in context, they they come to distrust the information they're hearing from official sources, whether it's the news media or the officials. And when that happens, they tend to start distrusting a lot of information, maybe all the information, when they shouldn't because maybe other very important information about coronavirus and other topics is accurate and true. But they don't know what to believe because they have seen in a very simple way that some of the information is not quite in the proper context or changes and evolves over time. There's nothing wrong, I think, with officials saying, this is what we know right now and it could change. But a lot of times they don't say that. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But I think it would bring a lot more confidence in the system and a lot more trust if they would tell the truth, give the proper context, and not try to just 
manage us with information out of context or information sometimes that may not be true because they don't want us to buy up all the masks or they don't think we can handle the truth, whatever it is, because they create the crisis of confidence. And then some people turn around and blame the people for having some skepticism when, in fact, I would say it is the officials at times and some of the media who do not properly or in context report the information who create the system that leads to a crisis in confidence or some mistrust when what public officials really need is for people to be able to believe and trust what they say is the truth or the best they know at a given point in time. So in the big picture, let's look at this whole problem that I've discussed. With the New York Times, yes, I've gotten some corrections and fixes, but thinking about what it took makes me wonder what happens to ordinary people who cannot afford to take the time or to hire a libel lawyer and send a letter and get this kind of attention to get some fixes made. How many mistakes are made about people who aren't contacted before a story, who are smeared with false information, whose quotes may be deceptively edited but never fixed? How many times does that happen that we know nothing about? And shouldn't all of us want factual, accurate, checked information about whatever topic is at hand, rather than information that is just directly spoon-fed to us from officials without being checked out, people who occasionally may be wrong or may have a conflict of interest or a reason maybe not to give us all of the information that we ought to have? Something to think about. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Check out justthenews.com and don't forget to subscribe to the Cheryl Ackeson podcast, my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, and the other Just the News podcasts. I think they're available wherever you like to listen. And pre-order my book, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.